Hello and welcome to the latest weekly Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and with me is Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Wunderflood Securities. As always, we'll start with a quick review of the week in the markets. It's been a bit up and down this week, I think, uh, Simon. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the UK market uh, will end up on the week, probably somewhere between 25 and 3%, but it's certainly been a tougher week for investment companies. They've lagged the wider UK marketplace. They'll probably finish just about up in positive territory. Though it's fair to say it's, uh, it's been far more difficult. So it's been unusual this year for the UK to do relatively well relative to the rest of the world and the investment trust sector. So uh, can you think of a reason for that or is it just sort of volatility, short-term volatility? Is there an underlying reason for that, do you think? So yeah, you, you, again, you're right. The all share is probably down about 16% or so so far this year, compared to investment companies down about 1% or so. But this particular week, I think it's fair to say that slightly more challenging environment, particularly for those companies uh, with overseas exposure, technology has had a bit more of a difficult time this week. And I think there's a slight summer malaise creeping in a little bit uh, as far as the investment trust sector is concerned. I think people have an eye to to the beach and sandcastles rather than perhaps the market. Now that the beach is, uh, is open for visitors, I'm sure that uh, you may be right about that. Before we move on to talk about this week's topics, I thought we might just mention, we're not going to talk at length about this, you had a conversation, quite a strong, interesting conversation with one of the biotech uh, investment companies. And uh, I just picked up on the fact, apart from their strong performance, that um, they made some comments about the vaccine and the progress that's being made around the world with the vaccine. Obviously, there's a big race on to become the first to develop an effective vaccine. Uh, Which was that trust and what did they have to say? So it's a trust called Biotech Growth. Uh, the fund manager is a chap called Jeff Shu. Um, he's part of the Orbimed team who are based in New York. And they're a specialist team looking uh, entirely at the healthcare sector. So incredibly well placed to uh, provide an update on, on what's going on in terms of the development of the vaccine. As you say, in a call this week, he was very positive over the, the prospects for that vaccine to be developed. To be fair, he was talking about the portfolio and how they weren't particularly chasing that as, as a theme, but how they were aware of a number of their portfolio companies were involved in that. But um, his basic thesis was that with you know, 150 or so vaccines in development using a variety of approaches, uh, and on top of that, you know, I think he came up with a number of 250 potential treatments, and there have already been a couple of those that have been picked up by the media as showing some kind of progress, that his view was that there was going to be a breakthrough uh, in this area. So um, I think we can all agree to keep fingers crossed and on all the rest of it that, that this indeed is, is the case. But it, the, the point he was trying to make is there's just been a huge amount of resource in terms of energy and people and time poured into this. And it is the, you know, the healthcare sector, and particularly that biotech space, that are really um, doing the hard yards on this and trying to develop um, a vaccine that will be a game changer. I picked up on one other comment that he made as well, which I thought was uh, interesting or perhaps worth uh, reminding ourselves of. I mean, in the past, one of the big problems with any kind of drug company was it took an incredibly long time to bring things to market, to get through the testing process. But he made a comment not just about the, uh, the vaccine, obviously, which governments are very keen to see rush through if they can survive the testing process. Uh, but he also made a comment about the regulatory environment for drugs. Uh, I'm not sure whether that was just for biotech drugs or more generally. Uh, what did he have to say there? Because that's quite important for this particular sector, I would think. Yeah, hugely important, hugely important. And we don't have to go back that many years when when really it was a considerable barrier to actually getting these drugs uh, up and approved. And obviously, as you say, they take time, huge amounts of money gets poured into uh, drug development. 
But ha- it has improved actually over a number of years. So the FDA, the federal drug authorities there in America, uh, they have been far more progressive now for, for a number of years. And, and we've seen the result of that with a, a greater number of drugs getting approval. But the point I think he was making in this call that given, as you rightly observed, that in the case of COVID-19 and the coronavirus, that there is this great impetus to get this thing up and running, that if you can do it for uh, this one particular virus, then you have a precedent. And hopefully thereafter, that they will be minded to move these things through a lot quicker. Um, I mean, we'll see. Clearly, the reasons why the authorities uh, take a very strict line on drug approval, you don't want to approve drugs that uh, then a bit further down the line turn out to be uh, inappropriate or have quite serious side effects. And, and I think we can all think of examples where that's happened in the past. Um, but I think broadly speaking, it would be a positive for the healthcare and, and in particular the biotech sector. Well, that's uh, also encouraging for investors at least. Uh, shall we move on then to talk a little bit about the property sector? We've talked a lot about the property sector the last few weeks, but I think you are in a better position now to sort of take an overview of where we are. Obviously, some property companies are doing better than others. Uh, and the discounts, the wide disparity in discounts across the sector tell their own story. But you've done some research on this, and I wonder, what have you been finding there? Yeah, so what we've done this week is that we've looked at all those UK commercial property companies that have uh, provided an update in terms of their recent rent collection data. Now, towards the end of June, we'd expect tenants to uh, pay their rent for the upcoming quarter, so the three months to the end of September, And this was a time where we were worried, and I think the market was worried, that a lot of um, underlying companies would would struggle to pay their rent. Um, But actually, and to be fair, it's an incomplete data set at the moment. We're still waiting on on a number. But the picture is broadly encouraging that the amount of rent collected so far uh, is probably higher than we might have expected. It's not 100%. Let's just be very clear about that. And clearly, it varies from property company to property company. One of the big swing factors is those uh, commercial property companies that are exposed to retail. Clearly, uh, for reasons that everybody uh, can appreciate, retail is, is, is absolutely in the eye of the storm. But aside from those or, or those property companies that have a lower exposure to retail, the picture is generally uh, encouraging. Clearly, there are a few cases where people are struggling to pay. But even where that's the case, that um, quite often that uh, agreements have been reached whereby um, the rent may be deferred or paid over a longer period of time or leases extended. So in other words, there's a, there's a negotiation process there. But what does that mean for shareholders in these property investment companies? You know, you could make the argument that we could see a bit of upside in, in terms of dividends. Now, obviously, many of these property investment companies have had to either suspend or, or rebase, as we say, cut back their dividends. Um, it could be the case that actually you might see a little bit of upside in that. Possibly a bit early to call that one, but there are a few green shoots there. As you say, there's a lot of disparity across the sector. Some have suspended, some have, as you say, rebased, which is a, a bit of a euphemism for reducing them, I think. And others, of course, have managed to say they'll be able to pay dividends in full. Obviously, as we mentioned before, if you look at the historic dividends on some of these property companies, they look uh, ridiculously good, you know, one or two in 10% or more. But of course, they tend to be the ones which have already said they're going to rebase their dividends. So could you just give us some examples of, of trusts, those which have suspended their dividends and those which have been able to maintain them? We've, we've talked about some of the names so far, but there is quite a big disparity, I think. So perhaps you could just give us a, a few names, just examples of those which have suspended or cut and those which have uh, been able to maintain their dividend or promised to anyway. So of the kind of more mainstream UK commercial property investment trusts, those that have suspended their dividends, i.e. are not paying out their dividend at the moment, 
Uh, that would include um, those funds such as BMO Commercial Property, uh, which is quite a large fund, the Schroeder Real Estate Fund, uh, and there's also a smaller one called Drum Income Plus. Uh, in addition to that, we've seen a number that have actually halved their dividends or perhaps even a little bit more. So um, again, funds such as BMO Real Estate Investments, Alternative Income REIT, uh, Custodian REIT, they're in the kind of 40 to 55% uh, dividend cut range. Uh, and a few have taken a more kind of modest haircut. So uh, an example of that would be something like LXI REIT has, has uh, cut uh, their dividend by 10% so far. But uh, away from those mainstream UK commercial property funds, uh, the picture is more encouraging. If you look at the, the, the more specialist healthcare names, Impact Healthcare and Target Healthcare, they haven't uh, taken a, a dividend cut a, at all. And that's the same story for supermarket income REIT. I think that's one we talked about before. Urban Logistics and Warehouse REIT, they're, they're still um, offering substantial yields. And uh, another name in that space, Tritax Big Box, uh, which is a great name. They've only taken a 9% dividend cut so far. So it's a very mixed picture. I think the key thing is, though, when you look at a yield uh, on a, on a uh, property investment company, um, often you, you see it on a historic basis. Well, given what's been going on this year, um, you've got to be very careful not to rely on that data. So one of the things we'll be tracking, and essentially I think is, is a message you've just been given, is that if it turns out that some of the encouraging noises you've heard turn out to be justified, in other words, that the rent collection experience is better than uh, the market is expecting or the companies have been expecting, then we would expect to see probably some kind of reduction in the, in the discounts they're trading at, whatever the updated NAVs will be when they do finally appear. There'll be a bit of a trade-off there. But other things being equal, you might expect some improvement in the discounts if that experience is what happens. And I emphasize that, obviously, we don't know that for sure yet. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of these property companies are trading on big discounts and, you know, particularly those that have completely suspended their dividends because obviously people have held these things or have owned these things for, for income. That's been one of the key drivers of the asset class. And given that there's been a big question mark over how sustainable that income is in the short and medium term, uh, that explains the, the discounts. And I think in addition to that, the actual capital value, so what's a property valued at, that's a very difficult uh, subject as well, because again, the, the professional values of property use income as the basis in many, many instances of what a property is worth. So, you know, big question marks over that. So um, I would say it's a sector that's still got a few bumps to go over this year and, and clearly hugely sensitive to the economic picture uh, in the UK or whatever uh, territory or region that they're exposed to. But yeah, the income uh, element of the story is, is hugely important. Just a final point on that. We've talked about this as well before, but it's worth perhaps mentioning that some of these companies, when they're reporting, they mention the fact that there is a material value uncertainty, at least about whatever audited figures they're going to produce as well. So what does that mean? And, uh, and how important is that if you're looking at it as a shareholder? So we saw that a lot for the valuations as at the end of March. Clearly, the world was a very, very difficult place at the end of March. Um, and to ask a professional valuer to put a, a, an accurate value on a, on a property at that precise moment in time was clearly hugely difficult. So effectively, the property regulator recognized that at that stage and, and had this uh, wriggle room and said, look, you know, there's material uncertainty over the value of these properties. We can all recognize that. And it's almost impossible to guess at that stage what these properties are worth. Uh, I think in a number of instances, that's kind of fallen away. I think now we're a little bit further down the track. As discussed, some are seeing that rent coming through quite nicely. Others are clearly struggling. Uh, I think that the picture becomes a little bit clearer. So that idea of a kind of material uncertainty over a property valuation, I think, falls away. And 
to that point, when we do get property valuations as at the 30th of June, which is the next valuation point, we'll be getting those in the next month or so, they're going to be very interesting to see um, where they come out, given uh, everything that's happened over the last three or four months. Yes, and I suppose we won't discuss this now, but another issue that struck me is that while everybody's been focusing on the retail and the impact of uh, the virus on retail, uh, there may in the longer term be an impact on, on the office sector as well, if people's working habits do in fact change permanently as a result of the virus pandemic. That's a topic we can come back to, I'm sure, in the future. Let's move on to a sector which has been uh, producing, I would say, almost unalloyed good news, and that is the technology sector. It's been the standout performer this year, virus or no virus, it's brushed that aside. We've heard this week from uh, well, more than one technology company. Let's start with perhaps the best known one, which is Polar Capital Technology. They had some results, I think. What, what were they saying? Yeah, so Polar Capital Technology, um, arguably the flagship technology investment trust run by Ben Rogoff, being very successful. They had their annual results out to the end of April. During that 12-month period, they saw an NAV total return of just short of 19%, and that put them just ahead of their benchmark. But actually, in share price terms, and that's ultimately what people end up with in their pocket, uh, they were up 31% in that period, and that reflected the fact that uh, the discount had tightened and, and that's trading on a bit of a premium. So that was a positive period. It's interesting, though, I think that the, the, the comments that came out uh, of those results regarding valuations, I think we all know technology has done very well this year. It's been a fantastic place to have had uh, investment. But actually, you know, this question, has it gone a bit too far? What, you know, are valuations overextended? Uh, and indeed, you know, people harking back to 99, 2000 and the tech bubble and the valuations that we saw now. And actually, the chair of PolarCap picked up on this, picked up on the on the valuations point and, you know, made made the trend that actually, you know, things are different to 20 years earlier, that actually these are proper companies now with substantial earnings and, and revenue and very, very established and offering investors growth in a world that arguably has become and is likely to be a lower growth environment for some time. So, you know, one of the things they were talking about was the acceleration in a number of trends that, uh, you know, vehicles such as Polo Cap Technology have been playing for a number of years and how this process has just seen those trends accelerate to the benefit of uh, shareholders in Polo Cap. Yes, I think they mentioned, uh, I think it was just an average figure looking ahead to the future year's earning forward PEI of 27 times, which is, uh, which is pretty big by conventional standards. But we are in a low interest rate world and these companies, as you say, are growing very fast. The others in the sector, well, we've talked about uh, the Allianz Technology Fund, I think, in, in the past, but we could uh, mention just for comparative purposes how they've done. And also there's a company called Herald Investment Trust, which has a slightly different focus, I think, has been mentioned before. Uh, they also produced some half-year results, uh, this time for the half-year ending in 30th of June, which is only about three weeks ago. So that was pretty quick. What did, what did Herald have to say? And how would you assess the whole sector overall? Well, small, but uh, rather high-performing sector in the investment trust space. So Herald's uh, interim results, so this was basically the six-month period to the end of June. Unsurprisingly, they had a, a decent set of results. Their NAV was up uh, just short of 8%. They, they, they compared themselves to the UK mid and small cap market, uh, which obviously struggled in that period. So they uh, outperformed them. And actually, the Russell 2000 index, which is a US-based uh, smaller company, they, they outperformed that as well. So all good. Herald is run by a team led by a lady called Katie Potts. She's a hugely experienced uh, investor. I think she uh, established this investment trust back in 19. 19- 
1994. It's very different from, from Polar Cap technology and Allianz technology. It has a greater emphasis on mid and small cap companies and much higher weighting to the UK, probably about half the portfolio in the UK, uh, and it'd be far, far lower in the case of Allianz Tech and Polo Cap Tech as well. Though they do have some larger um, US companies, uh, those with market caps over 3 billion, but as a rule of thumb, uh, it has a focus on much smaller companies. It's also trading on a bit of a discount as well, and it has done for any number of years, so probably on about a 12% discount now, just slightly narrower than their average over the previous 12 months of 15%. So it's a it's a more specialist play on technology. I mean, within that peer group, you're absolutely right. Polar Cap technology and Allianz technology, if you look down their top 10 holdings, you will recognize pretty much every name. You'll see the Amazons, PayPal, Netflix, and so on and so forth. And those funds have pretty comparable records. Uh, Allianz Technologies outperformed Polar Cap over the last five years at the moment, but it's a good race. And Polar Cap is larger in size. It's a market cap of 2.8 billion now compared with um, just over 900 million for Allianz Technologies. So both two decent sized companies, but Polar Cap obviously a bit more uh, established and larger. There is a fourth member of that little subsector, and it's a smaller fund. It's only been launched um, a few years ago. And it's called Augmentum Fintech. Uh, and that's a quite a specialist play. It looks at uh, UK and European fintech companies, as the name would suggest, but um, it's venture capital. So these are private companies. They're all private companies at the moment, so unlisted companies. And they look to really take advantage of, and, and exploit the opportunities that are undoubtedly being seen in the UK and European market in terms of financial technology companies. So they've got a whole range of things. They're probably the best known company in their portfolio at the moment, and, the, and certainly the largest has been very successful today is Interactive Investor, uh, which I'm sure as many people will know, it's a, it's a platform that enables access to, to stocks and shares and, and vehicles, and including the investment trusts. Indeed, and I'm sure some of our listeners will be clients of theirs. Interactive has been very successful at um, hoovering up, if I may put it that way, some of the other <laughs> players in that market. So they're competing against Hargreaves Lansdowne and uh, AJ Bell towards the larger companies there. So that's very interesting. That's one to watch. Just tell me uh, quickly about uh, Augmentum. What is it? How does it trade? How big is it? And um, what's its uh, ticker? So its ticker is AUGM. It's uh, trading on a small discount for about a 5% discount at the moment. It's a market cap of about 125 million. So it's smaller than its three larger peers. Uh, but as I said, it's only been launched a, a few years ago. But, you know, it's definitely one to watch the, the investment team there. Um, they've targeted next year, 2021, as a year that will see a liquidity event uh, for one of their portfolio companies. So easier said than done, to be fair, but that would probably be a bit of a game changer if they pull that off. So let's move on then from a relatively small newcomer in an exciting new area to some very traditional investment companies, which operate in the either in the flexible or the global sector. We might uh, start off by saying what the flexible sector is when I finish this question, Simon. It's relatively new, but the trust in it are mostly very, very uh, well established. And we've had results from one or two of them. But so Perhaps two that are well known to people are Personal Assets Trust and Ruffa, both of whom make a great virtue of their defensive qualities. Uh, indeed, uh, Personal Assets says that its number one priority is not to lose any capital. And only secondly, does it look for a, a, a positive return. And Ruffa similarly has a very defensive or has had a very defensive approach based on its understanding of where we are in the, in the global economy. So let's start with those two. And tell us, first of all, what is flexible investment sector? What, is it, what does it mean? 
So the flexible investment sector, um, the idea is basically those investment trust companies in that subsector have the flexibility to invest across a range of asset classes. So, you know, we often talk about investment trusts that invest in global equities or UK equities, or they might invest in infrastructure or property. In the case of those in the flexible investment category, they can invest in whatever they like, obviously subject to their investment mandate, shareholder approval and the rest of it. And actually, if you look at personal assets and indeed rougher, um, you can see that reflected in their portfolios. So personal assets had its final results out for the year to the end of April. As you correctly say, they, they look to protect an increase in that order, the value of shareholders fund. And, and that's what they achieved in this year. They had an NAV increase of just over 5%. And obviously at a time when the UK market was down about 20%. But within the portfolio, they have exposure to equity, though actually that was um, reduced during the year ahead of uh, the sell-off in markets. Actually, it was down to about 30%. Uh, and the investment team there, uh, Spassian Line of Triassic Management, is responsible for this portfolio. And he actually took the opportunity of the, the sell-off in February, March to increase the exposure of the portfolio to equities. Um, so it's probably uh, near to about 40% or so now. But it also has exposure to, to gold and to uh, kind of more specialist fixed income type uh, securities such as uh, UK Treasury bills. It has US TIPS, which are inflation-linked fixed uh, income securities. And so it has a whole range of asset classes. And as I say, over the long term, it's performed very well. In fact, over 30 years, I think they had a stat in the results that they delivered return equivalent to uh, 7% annualized versus 3.9% for the for the all share. Uh, so very strong long-term performance record. And they have a zero discount policy as well. So you know in that particular instance, uh, you're never likely to see a, a discount or a big premium opening up. They're very quick to buy back or issue shares to ensure that the share price uh, is more or less in line with their NAV. So Ruffer Investment Company, uh, they had their year-end review to the end of June. Uh, and again, really, really strong period for, for Ruffer, given this um, absolute return type uh, mentality that they pursue. They had an NAV total return of 10%. Their share price was a little bit ahead of that 12%. Um, and the various elements of, the, of their portfolio, again, a whole range of asset classes. Credit protection did well for them. Gold, unsurprisingly, did very well. Index-linked bonds uh, and also uh, option protection. So they had uh, different elements all performing very well for them. Their equity exposure was a, a detractor. And I think that probably reflects that they've got a more cyclical value bias in the way that they invest that. Yes, I mean, it's fair to say they've been very successful delivering what they promised, which is uh, essentially uh, avoiding capital loss over the long period. And indeed, over the longer term, they've produced some very good returns. They will obviously tend to underperform when, when the market is in a bull phase because equities run ahead and they don't have that big an exposure to equities compared to their some of their peers. And you pay a price for the uh, capital preservation. I mean, I'm, their kind of five-year returns in particular have been relatively weak, if you think probably about what, 20 or 30%. Uh, over a five-year period, which compares to more than 250% if you put your money into one of the tech uh, trusts. But you you know, you know, get what you pay for, and uh, it all depends on the investor's uh, attitude to risk and how much risk they want to take. It may be determined by their age or by their family situation or whatever. But I do think it's significant that uh, Troy Asset Management, who are the advisor to personal assets, is a self-managed trust. I think it's fair to say that. Uh, but they do have an advisor who is... Uh, the gentleman who runs uh, Troy Asset Management, uh, and to see them actually increasing their equity exposure in response to the market fall is for them quite a quite a significant change of direction. It does suggest that they do see some value in the equity market uh, compared to where they were before. No, I think that's right as well. And I think it's worth noting in the case of personal assets that 
Sebastian Ioni, he's not a perma bear. You know, he's happy to look for what he would call quality growth uh, companies. So, for instance, the names that have come into the portfolio in the last year include things like Alphabet and, and Visa, and you know they've sold out all their last remaining uh, oil companies. So, you look down the list of, of names, one or two now in the UK, most are, are US names, but they're all good quality companies. I think, um, if memory serves me correctly, they've got Microsoft in there and other names that have performed pretty well this year. So it's not just that they're hiding in uh, utilities or defensive companies. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a slight contrast with Ruffo, which have a which have a similar sort of defensive approach, but they formed the view oh, some years back that basically the consequences of the financial crisis, among other things, was going to be that we would see a return to inflation quite soon, and they're positioned, you know, for that, which of course hasn't happened yet and may not yet happen for a while. So there is a difference in philosophy between the two, and that has been reflected in the results. But uh, they proved their worth during this particular sell-off, where they obviously maintained the value of their shareholders' investments with great success. Let's talk about some other large trusts which have us may have a similar approach in some respects. Uh, we've heard from Caledonia recently, and then we could talk maybe about uh, Hansa Trust. Let's start with Caledonia. Have we heard anything new from Caledonia in the last uh, week or so? So Caledonia Investments have provided an update for the, the second quarter of this year, so a three-month period to the, the end of June. And their NAV was actually up about 5 5.5% over that time, uh, really driven by their quoted equity pools. So the, the portfolio is set up into three broad pools, basically. One, a pool of um, equity, so publicly listed companies, and they perform quite well in the period. Then they've got a, a funds pool. So they use third-party, more specialist vehicles for access to the US and Asia, uh, and they were up slightly. But probably of most interest was the what they call the private capital pool. So this is their unquoted investments, and this accounts for about a third of their portfolio. It's quite a tight list in terms of holdings or investments, but it includes Buzz Bingo, which I'm sure people will be familiar with. Unsurprisingly, Buzz Bingo has had a tough time uh, at the moment, and in the update, uh, they announced uh, that there would be proposals to close 26 of uh, the company's 117 retail clubs. And, and sadly, that will result in quite a number of redundancies. But Caledonia Investments are investing an additional £22 million as part of that restructuring. So obviously, they are positive that the, that the company can come back from this. One of their other private uh, holdings uh, that's also been hit very hard by uh, the coronavirus is Liberation Group, which is essentially a pub chain. But there's some more positive news there. Obviously, pubs are now starting to reopen. That They're based down in the southwest of the country, I think, and they're also in the Channel Islands. Um, and at the moment, there's no additional capital required for that company. So, you know, again, we'll see how these, these particular private investments work. But in those particular sectors, clearly quite a tough time at, mo- at the moment. I suppose it's fair to say that if you're uh, investing in pubs and bingo and gambling and stuff, you're probably not the kind of thing that the new breed of ESG investors are going to be particularly interested in. But uh, as you say, they have a very broad uh, portfolio, well-established, been running for many years. But they do trade at a big discount. And uh, it's basically, if you like, a development of a family office. They trade at a big discount. Uh, is that because of their private equity exposure? Do they normally trade at a discount? What's, what's the story there? Because the contrast, obviously, with personal assets and rougher, both trading near close to par is, is quite marked. Yeah, I think both of those are valid reasons why why they would trade at a, I've got one about a 20, 22% discount at the moment. You know, arguably it reflects their um, unquoted, uh, the, the private equity element of their portfolio. And also it has tended to trade on a mid-teens to 20% discount. They have uh, bought back over the years. 
um, at around 20 or just over 20 percent. Um, probably, I suspect, more, more keen to conserve capital at this precise moment in time for obvious reasons. But yes, it has it has invariably traded on on a wide discount. So as you say, it is a, it is a bit of a family office. There's a very large stake uh, owned by one particular family. It's, uh, it goes back many many years. But they are looking to generate attractive long term absolute returns um, and also pay uh, a dividend as well. And their dividend is equivalent to about two point three percent of their share price at the moment. So that's one of the things that they've been very focused on. And I guess it's also fair to say that the family and the bigger shareholders there are obviously happy to let the discount continue for a while because they're long-term investors. They're not too concerned about today's valuations. But there are some trusts which have even bigger discounts. Uh, and one of those is an investment company called Hansa Trust. Perhaps you might explain what they do. Uh, it's quite an interesting, uh, rather uh, idiosyncratic uh, example of an investment trust, I would say. And it also has, I think, uh, two classes of shares. Perhaps you could explain that as well. That's right. So it's actually Hansa Investment Company. It was Hansa Trust, but it went uh, offshore uh, last year to uh, ended up in Bermuda. It's actually Hansa Investment Company, but it does still have two share classes. The A shares are non-voting and the ordinary shares actually are voting. And uh, the majority of those are held by a particular family. But the discount is wide, um, probably around about 38% or so for both share classes. It is, as you say, it is a slightly unusual um, investment trust vehicle. Um, effectively, 80% of it you could describe as a very much in line with a portfolio that you're you, not too far away from a rougher or personal asset. So, you know, a, built to generate uh, attractive absolute returns in, in very much a kind of family office type mold uh, by use of a little bit of direct equities, but also by using third party managers and diversifying funds. There's talk of core thematic so you'll even recognize some investment trusts are in the portfolio but then there's a 20 percent stake in another listed company called ocean wilson's holdings which in itself has a controlling stake in a brazilian operating company called wilson sun so it's, this is a slightly complicated kind of structure uh, but effectively it is wilson sun's uh, as i say brazilian company it has had a tough time over the last year and that's the notion wilson's trade on a big discount to its value because that consists of this stake and uh, investment portfolio itself and i think it's fair to say that um, that's reflected in hansa's uh, valuation so it's a discount on a discount on a discount really but it's one of those that i think probably people will have looked at over the years and been attracted by the the, the level of its discount about a year or so ago there was an announcement to the market that there was a strategic review into um, a part of wilson's sons and I think at that stage, the market got quite excited that this would see a change in the corporate structure. There might be an element of, of the business sold off, possibly. Um, but as it turned out, uh, nothing came of it. And I think at that stage, uh, the discount on, on Hansa Investment Company did uh, widen out again. So it's one of those that I think most people could, could argue it's difficult to, to work out exactly why it's trading on such a wide discount. The, the complexity of its structure um, probably has a large part of that. Yes, it might be worth just mentioning, it's quite rare now these days, but why would an investor want to invest in shares which have no votes? And why would a company want to offer a shares which have no votes? Is there any advantage to the shareholder in that? Or how do they perform relative to each other? It used to be more common than it is now. The obvious reason is that it allows the owners of the voting shares to retain control of the company. But uh, what would be the rationale for that? And why would some people be happy to own the non-voting shares? So you're absolutely right. I mean, it is a legacy structure and it basically allows the owners of the company to not only control this company, but effectively Ocean Wilson's and Wilson's Sons. So there's a kind of control on control on control element here. 
the NEV of both share classes are the same. The share price is actually not dissimilar at all, um, really very little in it. One's 43p apart on 160p share price, so very, very little in it. But yes, it's about control for the owners. So it seems if the discount retains widers, it's unlikely that someone's going to come along and try to change that, or it makes it less likely because of the voting held by the owners of the voting shares. Let's just quickly talk about another investment trust we mentioned before, which is called Mighton Global Opportunities. And the reason we're interested in that, of course, is because it's an investment trust that only invests in other investment trust shares with the idea of uh, spotting bargains that uh, maybe have been thrown up by the pricing of other investment trusts. I think they produced some results. We talked about them two or three weeks ago, but uh, what have they been saying now? So they had their annual results out to the end of April. Tougher period for them. Their NEV was down 19%. Their share price just short of 23%. So obviously being impacted quite hard by the sell-off that we saw in the market uh, back in March. And in fact, so this is a vehicle run by Nick Greenwood and Charlotte Cuthbertson, you know, very experienced management team, particularly Nick has been doing this for uh, many, many decades. But the average discount of their 12 largest holdings as at the end of April was actually 28%. So you know, we talk about the sector average discount on investment trust companies probably being about 6% at the moment. And obviously, there are still a number trading on premiums uh, to their NAVs. But actually, for Nick and Charlotte's portfolio, the average discount, or certainly of their 12 largest, was 28%, which just shows the kind of value that they're able to find at the moment. And, you know, in terms of the names that they've been adding to over this period, I mean, it's things such as Augmentum Fintech, which we talked about earlier, Oakley Capital, Tufton Oceanic Assets, uh, Ground Rents Income. So these these are all interesting names. It's fair to say that they don't invest in the largest, best known investment trust companies. That's not where they're hunting. They're looking at uh, investment trust companies that may be just a little bit smaller, maybe off some people's radars and uh, invariably trading on wide discounts. And that's what they look out for. And that's what they seem to take advantage of. Yes, I mean, I guess that the logic behind that is that the larger investment trusts, there'll be more active trade and more active research into them. And therefore, you would expect them, if you believe at all in the efficiency of the market, you would expect them to be trading you know, around where they should be trading. That's the sort of initial presumption of the efficient markets idea. I think a lot of people have some serious reservations about the efficient markets uh, theory. But obviously, it does seem logical that the bigger opportunities would be in the smaller, more specialist investment trusts that aren't as widely followed. And the price you pay for that is you get more volatility and it's harder to deal in quantity in those shares, less liquidity. But uh, it's a long-term game by definition. So finally, I thought I might mention one other trust. I mentioned in this context, so it's actually got a different mandate completely. But this is an interesting trust for those who are interested in the history of investment trust. This is something called the Independent Investment Trust, which has a long history going back, uh, I think, to the 1920s or something like that. And there was a brief period when uh, the great... John Maynard Keynes was involved in its management. The manager now is a gentleman called Max Ward, who used to run Scottish Mortgage before it was uh, taken over by James Anderson and his colleagues. He used to work at Bailey Gifford. It's had, again, it had a very strong performance for for a number of years, but uh, obviously has not done so well recently. What have they been saying and, and what can you tell us about Independent Investment Trust? So they had their interim results out to the end of May, and unsurprisingly, it was a, it was a tougher time for it. So their NAV total return was down about 17%. Um, so that was compared with the FTSE All Share uh, decline of 16% during that time. So they underperformed. Um, and actually, funnily enough, their underperformance was a result of the fact that Max decided effectively to uh, substantially increase the cash balances in the portfolio towards the end of March, given the lockdown 
um, and actually sold stocks that probably, with the benefit of hindsight, and things are always easier with the benefit of hindsight, they're probably better to have held on to. So just a few days ago, they were sitting in cash of about 21% of the portfolio. So uh, unfortunately, they didn't enjoy the kind of recovery that we saw post those March lows. But you're right, the long-term numbers um, still stack up pretty well. You know, Max is very much a, a growth investor. Um, I mean, he's played house builders uh, for any number of years. He had a few names in, in travel and leisure, which has undoubtedly been a tougher period, and also some tech and telecoms names, all predominantly in the UK marketplace. But over the last five years... Um, their NAV total return is um, about 48%, which compares with the FTSE all share of 13%. So a tougher period, and that's reflected in the discount. The discount's widened out on this one. Um, it's about 12% or so at the moment, compared with an average of 7% over the last 12 months. Yes, indeed. And for a long period, it traded at a premium, which was interesting. But it has been very well. I remember it did very well before the global financial crisis and then took a bid hit when the crisis happened. And again, was doing very well until about two years ago. And it's obviously been uh, hit by the market setback in, in 2018 and again this year. So it's uh, if, you, if you do own it, it's one for the longer term. You have to live with some volatility in the shorter term. But Max, is a, is a, I've, I've met him. I know him. He works uh, on his own in an office, free from any uh, pressures, institutional pressures. And the chairman and he both own a significant slice of the investment trust, which means that you're very much in the, you know, aligned with their interests. And of course, they may be right. They may have seen something. Their decision to go into cash may be because they are very nervous about where the next move in the markets might be. I don't think they've talked about that particularly, but I think you might deduce that. And we'll wait and see whether that is uh, borne out by events or not. So that's all we've got time for this week, Simon. It's been a very interesting week, as usual. We are heading into the summer season now. We all, it's always said that the uh, the big names in the fund management is head for the beach about uh, from about next week onwards. But I wonder if that'll be the case this year or whether we'll get some August surprises, which we've certainly had one or two of those in, in recent years. What's your experience been of the of the summer months in general, Simon? Uh, it undoubtedly gets a, a little bit quiet over, over the summer, but actually a number of companies provide uh, earnings updates uh, during this period, so for the first half of the year. So we'll probably see a few of those in the next few weeks, uh, and we'll certainly see more at the end of August. It tends to be a lull during the middle of August itself. And I think this year, those will be studied with a great deal of attention because clearly they're going to show how these companies are faring given what's going on. So it's possible you or I may even go on holiday at some point. We've been doing this podcast <laughs> every week now for, I think, 16 weeks. But we shall be here next week, I think. And uh, we will obviously keep people advised if there's any break in transmission for whatever reason. So, Simon, thank you very much. It's been good to talk to you as always. And we look forward to talking again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.